Good morning. This morning we're going to wrap up our uh, series on the seven churches in the Revelation. And I can't think of any better way to do that than to, to open with just a little update on what the church has been doing with a capital C. And move the mic. So, Tom, could you do me a favor and bring that mic back over? Um, and so, um, last year, or two, two years ago, two years ago, um, there was a catastrophic uh, tsunami attack. Uh, attack. It's like the tsunamis came. Um, there was a uh, there was a tsunami that hit Japan, and uh, this hit our congregation very personally because uh, not only do we have uh, missionaries in Japan, um, but one uh, one of our members, or two of our members, um, uh, were missionaries in Japan for several decades. And so I've invited Lynn Swenson um, to come up and just share the report from Crash, which was the agency that. Um, that we, we gave some financial support to in the tsunami era uh, situation. I want to invite Lynn to come up and, and just share an update on that. Uh, it's been fun reading this report because it's in Japanese as well as English and uh, brought back memory, many memories of our 34 years in Japan. Pastor mentions it's been over two years since the earthquake. That was the biggie that hit Japan, and that's what caused the tsunami. It was um, one of the most severe earthquakes to ever hit uh, our entire world in in history. It was nine uh, on the scale. Uh, Rarely do you ever uh, see an earthquake approaching that. If it's a five or six, that's major news. The devastation was unbelievable. I wonder if you understand that over 18,000 people lost their lives because of the earthquake and then the following tsunami which hit. Um, Over 300,000 people were displaced, lost their homes. 80% of the city of uh, uh, Kesanuma, which is a fishing port, probably 150,000 people. 80% of that city was just disappeared. It was totally destroyed. The devastation, physical devastation, is hard to imagine. And the videos that came shortly after, which I viewed on the Internet, were mind-boggling because I recognize roads that I had ridden on and uh, been through every one of those towns, Kesanuma, Ishinomaki, Tagajo, Shiogama. These are places where we have been because we lived in Sendai. We lived in that area of Japan. And so it hit very closely to home. Uh, But not only was there physical um, devastation, But what this earthquake and the disaster of the tsunami did to the Japanese people is very important. How would you feel if, you know, uh, an earthquake of that magnitude hit Portsmouth? You know, it, it comes very close to home. And you can understand the fear, the uncertainty, the sense of uh, vulnerability, which not only hit the people in the, the Tohoku, but that's the north, northern part of Japan, but 
all over Japan. Now, there isn't a day that Japan doesn't experience earthquakes. Uh, some you can't feel. Usually in a week, you know, you, you get, well, oh, there's an earthquake. And sometimes we'd be, Jerry and I would be laying in bed just, you know, trying to get to sleep, and all of a sudden our bed would start to rock. Oh, that's kind of nice, rocking yourself to sleep. But then you brace yourself and say, how strong is this going to get? And you get ready to jump out of bed and get out of the house if it's that severe. But it left a tremendous uncertainty, a feeling of vulnerability in the hearts of the Japanese. So this is the human side. And in the midst of this devastation, God raised up this wonderful organization called CRASH. That's a funny name, isn't it? CRASH? Well, it stands for Christian Relief Assistance Support and Hope. And they did this. They were one of the first uh, genuinely evangelical, thoroughly Christian organizations to react. They were set up. They had all their organization in place. The Salvation Army as well did a magnificent job. It's interesting. The Buddhists and Shintoists. Oh, that's unfortunate. It was the Christians who responded. The Japanese saw this. And Crash did a marvelous job of bringing the initial aid, whatever it was, blankets, food, cooking utensils, putting up tents so that people could uh, live and uh, have a place to get out of the rain. And this was reported in the newspapers. The churches, the Christian organizations were responding and giving help. And I believe this is one of the reasons God raised up this organization and had it in place because of this wonderful opportunity to bring a, a testimony to the Japanese. What was significant about CRASH is that they didn't do things on their own. They worked through the local evangelical churches in that entire area, and that's where most of our uh, conservative Baptist churches are located. We had churches in Kesanuma, and uh, Pastor Minagishi <laughs> uh, saw, well, he heard the warning about the tsunami coming, put his family into his van, and uh, drove to higher ground. Pastor, uh, the parsonage was right next to the church. When he got back, all he found was the foundation of the church and his house. Lost everything. It's one of our own. And Crash was there uh, to clean out the debris. Can you imagine the mountains of debris that this thing left? And uh, I'm very happy that our son Greg, uh, not just once, but on several occasions, went and helped cleaning up the awful messes and helping the Christians and encouraging them. Crash has brought their... Uh, involvement in this type of uh, aid to an end. They've done their job. The government has set up uh, all kinds of programs now to deal long range with the housing problem and uh, rebuilding of the cities and towns there. But the important um, aspect of this entire disaster is 
what is going to go on spiritually for Japan. Japan has uh, always been one of the most resistant uh, peoples to reach with the gospel. On a scale of 1 to 10, Japan is at number 9 in difficulty, in resistance to the gospel. Only Muslim nations are more resistant. They're number 10. Japan is number 9. I could give you all kinds of reasons why this is so. But uh, society itself is insular. Even the word for foreigner, outsider, gaijin, that's what we were. I heard that name all the time. I was a gaijin, a foreigner. And it's the idea, we Japanese and all the outsiders, except that the gospel is not limited. And the Japanese saw and watched the Christians as they poured out the love of Christ. That wasn't lost on them. And now the churches in the area are following on to continue to show the, the, uh, the love of Christ and to share the gospel with these people. We believe that it's, it's at least a crack in the door for future evangelism in Japan. But only the Holy Spirit himself can open the hearts of the Japanese. So I would say to you the challenge, spiritual challenge for us and for the Japanese, for the missionaries working in Japan, is to beseech our Lord to open the hearts of the Japanese as the missionaries continue to present the claims of Christ. I'd like to uh, bow our heads in prayer and just remember those, the pastors. Now, it's Sunday night in Japan right now. It's uh, right now about 20 to 12. <laughs> They're going on midnight. They've had their Lord's Day and the churches have met. But let's pray for the churches and the missionaries who are continuing on there. Father, we praise you that you have raised up this organization, Crash. Thank you for the opportunity you gave us to have a little part in helping those people who lost everything. And, oh, Father, we just ask that you might open the hearts of the Japanese people, that they might see the light of the gospel and see and understand that God loves them and he sent your only son to be a propitiation for them. Father, we ask that you'll give the missionaries wisdom as they seek every means possible to make contacts to show the love of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we might see that day of a great harvest in that wonderful land of Japan. Thank you for what you're doing and will do. In Jesus' precious name, amen. By the way, Greg is... Fourteenth, yep, yep, the fourteenth. If you haven't had a chance to to meet Lynn and Jerry, his wife Jerry, um, or spend some time with them in their home where they they talk to each other in Japanese, and you you just kind of wonder what they're doing. Um, are they poisoning the soybeans? I don't know. Uh, but uh, but it, it's a great opportunity. You, you've got to you know you've got to take the time to hear what what Japan was like when, when Lynn and Jerry got there in 1957.
um, and, uh, and how the nation has changed over time and all that stuff. But we've been, we've been in this series talking about the church, and if you, you've, you've missed it, we've been, in the, we've been looking at the seven churches of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, um, and we have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this morning, I, I, this, this week, I had a hard time kind of working on how do we wrap this up? How do we, how do we conclude this? Because some of the things that are in, um, in some of these churches, are, they're, 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 they were involved in horrible things. And then others were, were you know, they were, they were doing okay. They had quirks and some were really good. And it just kind of went back and forth. And how do we wrap this up? And and so, uh, you know, we had, to, we had to get the bulletin out. So, um, so the bulletin says Revelation chapter 2 and 3, but I'm not actually going to go there. Um, I'm actually going to uh, take you to the middle of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, and uh, chapter 31. And if you've been in the church for a long time, um, odds are if you're a lady, at some point you got taken to a ladies' conference where somebody told you that you were supposed to be a Proverbs 31 woman, and they went through this thing. And, and if you grew up in the church, guys, odds are somewhere along the line, your mom said to you, son, you want to find yourself a Proverbs 31 woman. Um, and, they, and there's all these, these statements. I'm not going to preach on women today. Um, I'm going to talk about the church. Uh, but I want to talk about a specific uh, role of the church. The Apostle Paul called the church the bride of Christ. That we are married to Christ. That we are called to be a part uh, of His ministry on earth. The Apostle John referred to the church as the special lady. My special lady. The elect lady. The elect woman. The chosen woman. He, he revered her. Um, in fact, in the scriptures, um, women are often elevated. And uh, in, in, in our culture, we live in a culture that's kind of recovered from a time where women were, were kind of held down. But in the, in the scriptures, uh, women are always elevated. They're, they're always um, uh, lifted up. Uh, and, and it's one of the things about Christianity that Christianity changed the way the world views women. People, anytime somebody says the God of the Bible is a misogynist, he doesn't like women, he does, you know, he's gonna that, that is that's hogwash. Um, it's not the way that it is at all. In fact, when when uh, the apostles wanted to describe the intimacy of the relationship between Jesus and His church, he called the church his wife. John calls the church. My, the elect lady, my special lady, my beloved lady. So this morning I want to look at Proverbs chapter 31, and I want to look at it in a context you may not have considered it before, and it is as the church. Um, Proverbs 31 is uh, written from an anonymous mother to a, a, a man named King Lemuel. It's probably... Um, King Solomon, the son of David, but, but he's just called Lemuel. Um, and uh, it describes for him a good woman. I just want to read it and I want to draw a couple of things out of it this morning that we can apply to the church. We'll read it and then we'll have a word of prayer. Um, but in verse 10, Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 10, this is what Lemuel's mother says to him. He says, a woman of noble character, who can find? Who can find? A woman of beautiful character, of beautiful integrity. She is worth more than rubies. 
Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like... She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark. She provides food for her family, portions for her servant girls. Now, ladies, this is a perfect moment for me to say that this is a cultural thing and the Bible is not commanding you to get up before the sun rises. Okay? Um, But uh, she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor, extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with the sashes. This is a perfect moment for me to tell the guys that this is not commanding you to sit while your wife works. All right? It's not commandment. It's principle. Um, Verse 25, she is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come when her husband thinks he can just sit. And and, Anyway, um, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Verse 27, She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned. Let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Let's pray for a moment. Jesus, we as your church come before you. Lord, you accept us in our flaws and you declare us beautiful. You accept us in our brokenness and you declare us whole. You accept us in our poverty and you share your riches with us and call us wealthy. You accept us in our cursedness and you call us blessed. As we come to your word as your church, help us to hear your spirit speak. Help this written word to reveal you, Jesus, our living word, that we might honor you in our midst. We ask all of this in your precious and holy name. Amen. A little bit of a disclaimer here, and I want to throw it out there just in case. I have a tendency sometimes to be misinterpreted, and so I I want to throw that out there. At no point in any case in this message will I be knocking on women. So if you hear something and it sounds like I'm saying women should be whatever, all right, whatever it is that you think that you hear, I didn't say it that way. You got it wrong, okay? I just want to get that out there and make sure that we understand because um, in our culture, um, the, the role of women has, has gone to two extremes. There are really kind of two extremes in our culture as to what, who a woman is or what a woman is. On one side of it, there's kind of this, um, this Victorian attitude that a woman is frail and stupid um, and that women can't really learn how to do things and, and they should just sit at home and be quiet and have babies. I mean, that you know, I don't believe my wife is barefoot and pregnant. I'll buy her sneakers. You know, they, 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 
that kind of this this very very demeaning attitude and many and some women accept that they accept that they say this is my role my role is to be to be a, an empty-headed vessel for my husband and just whatever he says that's what goes and and that's that's one extreme call it the the mousy pastel woman nothing wrong with pastels i just like bold colors all right um pastels i can never tell what color a pastel actually is is it a pink is it a green is it a blue they all they all look bland to me anyway um over on the other side there is this reaction to that that really emerged in the 60s and it is this this feminist super independent i don't need you get out of my way kind of attitude of women this control and 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 i'm in charge and you're not the boss of me playground attitude you know bra burning feminazi i think rush limbaugh coined that phrase feminazi um you know kind of attitude both of these are sinful I'm just going to start with that phrase right there. Both of those extremes are wrong. You will never find in the Bible anywhere where the Bible says, women, you are empty-headed morons. You will never see that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. The Bible exalts women. But you will also never see anywhere in the Bible where women are told, you just do whatever you feel like doing. That, that's not there either. There's a moderation in between. And the Proverbs 31 woman is that moderation. And I got to thinking about how the church operates in those two extremes as well as the bride of Christ. There are some churches that are, uh, I can't think of another word, mushy. They are the mousy, squeezy, softy, empty-headed I'm not trying to, I'm not picking on specific churches, but you guys know the kind of thing I'm talking about? You, you, know, you know, that that kind of thing, you know, where there's no, there's no solidness to it. And then there are churches on the other extreme. We know what Jesus is going to do and we're going to make him do it. You know, that, that other extreme of the church where it's, it's demand and push and we're going to, you know, and not just bossy, screamy preachers, but you know, kind of churches, but also these churches who, who develop this program and the system and we're going to be this and we're going to be that and, and it's going to be a blessed thing because we're doing it. You know, you know the kind of thing that I'm talking about? And both of those extremes are sin in the church as well. The church is called to be the bride of Christ and that means we should be like the Proverbs 31 woman. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge you to do something that that I often don't tell you to do, but you you probably should be doing anyway. I'm going to be speaking about principles that come out of this passage, and I want you, as we're talking about it, be looking over Proverbs 31 and and look and see those principles. Draw them out for yourself as you go along. Maybe maybe in the notes page, as I mention a value or something, maybe just jot down, yeah, verse this, verse that, verse this. These are things that are there. Because this will tell us, these are kind of these core values of this woman. And they should be really kind of the core values of the church as well. So let's talk about this Proverbs 31 woman. I mean, she is pretty amazing. In fact, um, her mother-in-law says this woman, she is to be worth more than rubies. She's, she's important. So these are, are valuable things. So what is she like? What are her core values? As we look through this passage, I'll tell you one of her core values is this. She sees what needs to be done, and she does it. 
This, this Proverbs 31 woman, if she sees that there's a field to be bought, she buys that field. If she sees that there's a task to be done, she does that task. If she sees that, that something needs to be managed, she manages it. I mean, you look at her, I mean, her, her husband is free. He's free to go to the gates of the city because she's running the household. She sees a need, she meets that need. She, she is in there, she is invested in there. Uh, in verse 17 it says she sets about her work vigorously, that she's intentional about making this happen. You know, I think in our world, because of the way that our world has shifted, because we're not uh, an agrarian culture built around farming and things, we forget that there are some jobs you have to do. I mean, those of you that work in an office, I mean, really, what is the purpose of your work? It's just to make sure there's more work tomorrow. Uh, I mean, oh, fill out this form so that we can get these forms, you know. Um, there's a line from Ace Ventura, sign here, sign here, it's initial here, we'll get the rest of the forms right out to you. Um, you know, this, but, but we have a tendency to, we have a tendency to, if we can't finish the job, we just go, it's okay, we can do it tomorrow. If you've ever had to work on a farm, you know that when the farmer says, this job's got to be done now, if that job doesn't get done, you don't eat for the rest of the year. There's an importance to it. And the scriptures say that a Proverbs 31 woman, she sees what needs to be done and she does it. She does it. Now, she doesn't say, get out of my way, I got work to be done. You know, but she, she, she says, here's a task that needs to be done and I'm going to do it. She has a confidence. If I, could, if I could gel that down, she has a confidence in her place in the world. She knows who she is she knows what needs to be done, and she knows how to do it. And you know, the church often does not know what we're supposed to be. And so we try to be either nothing or everything. You ever been to a church where their program looks more like a menu? What would you like to do this week? We have 986 activities for you to be involved in. I went to a friend's house and on his, on his, um, on his uh, 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 kitchen, uh, his, what's that co- thing you keep things cold in? Refrigerator. Um, it's been one of those weeks, guys. Um, but on his refrigerator was an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper of all of the men's activities for this year. And I looked at the schedule and I went, I'm exhausted just even considering having to do all those things. I mean, it was just so many things. And the reason was, and they have a men's ministry and a ladies' ministry and a children's ministry and a summer children's ministry and a Christian school and a, and a, and a vacation Bible school and, a, and a, they have a, a cleaning team and a bus team and a van team and a this team and a that team. And it, there's all of these things. And this is a church the same size as ours. And I'm going, oh my goodness. Don't you know what you're supposed to be doing? Hopefully by now you know that Bedford Road uh, Baptist Church exists for one reason, has three components, creating environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together. That's what we do. We don't create environments if there aren't leaders. People say this would be a great program for us to have and da 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 da, da. Are there leaders? No. Then we don't do it. Are the existing leaders going to be overtaxed to do that? Yes. Then we don't do it. Um, I have a workflow chart I never show anybody. It just has a giant no in the middle of it. Um, and, and I go through the questions. And as somebody asks me about something, I flow through. And if at any time it gets to no, guess what? It's not what Jesus wants us to do. 
Because the things that Jesus wants us to do, he equips us to do. And he uses the elders and the teachers and the, and the leaders of the congregation to equip us to do it and raise up leaders and all that stuff. But God equips us to do the things we're supposed to be doing. And that kind of ties into the second characteristic of this woman. This Proverbs 31 woman, she's confident in her place in the world. But secondly, she's intelligent. She's intelligent. If I hear one more time some Christian arguing out of ignorance because they, they're too lazy to do work and study and grow and mature. It drives me crazy. I, I go to a church, and I'm not trying to pick on other churches or anything, but I go to a church and the, 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 the preacher gets up and gives illustrations from an illustration book written in 1956 of all the illustrations from Charles Spurgeon from the 19th century. I'm sitting there going, hey, you know, there's a world full of illustrations. There's a world full of stories out there. Do we really need to be telling the same stories a British guy was telling in the 1870s? Can we grow? Can we expand? If I hear one more time that faith and science are, are, are at odds with one another, that's ignorance. If your faith isn't strong enough to stand up to science, you don't really believe it. And people say, this woman, this Proverbs 31 woman, she's intelligent. And it's not just like school smart. She's not educated. She's not, oh, I speak 86 languages and I, can, I have an MBA and all this stuff. Not that those things are wrong, but that's not what she is. Look at what she is. Look at what she does. She considers a field in verse 16. She looks at it and she goes, you know what? I can make money for my family for that. I can provide for my family with that. And she goes out and she buys it. And she saved the money to be able to buy it. This novel idea of only paying for things with money you actually have. Um, and she, she is intelligent. She's, she's engaged in the world around her. She knows what's going on. She's, she's interacting with, the, with what's happening. And, you know, it says to, I, I love this statement. It says that her husband, in verse 28, her husband, he praises her. He knows she's smarter than him. Men, whether you're smarter than her or not, she's smarter than you. You know, he knows he, he exalts, he praises her for what she is. And you know what the church, the church sometimes behaves as if we're not intelligent. I joked around with a pastor friend of mine that, that I'm, I'm PBS in the Discovery Channel and he's Nickelodeon. Because you sit, go up on his platform and there are flashing lights and a car, I'm not kidding, a car with a license plate and all this stuff, and they've got all the tech gizmos, whizzies. And what do I do when I come up on the platform? If you're lucky, I made a slide for the screen. Because that's, because that's not my thing. I, I just, I, I'm more interested in the history and the text. and the, that, that's, that's who I am. And I could be hip and cool and all that stuff, but I'd be bored out of my mind. I, I, I love those things. And I think a church needs to be intelligent. The world looks at Christians and says, well, they're good people, but they're ignorant. You only believe that because you don't have the right knowledge. And you know what? The way we view the world has been filtered through that. We don't even realize it. Whether you went to Christian school or you were homeschooled or you went to a, a, a secular school, you were probably taught 
that history divides into three parts, right? You were taught there's the ancient world, there's the Middle Ages, and there's the modern world. You know where that idea comes from? I mean, the people in the Middle Ages didn't walk around going, it's like, they call it the Dark Ages, like everybody's like, oh, look, I can see now. Um, the, the, it wasn't a Dark Age. In fact, there were um, tremendous innovations. And it's not like everybody walked around when Rome fell, you know, in 410 um, to Alaric, and then Romulus Augustulus was deposed by Odacker in 476. You guys were all really excited about that. It's not like the whole world, it's not like the whole world went around and went, oh, snap, now we're in the Middle Ages. Can't wait for those modern ages. They didn't do that. They just lived their lives. Today was today. The colors were just as bright. Lives were just as live. People were just as stupid. Nothing changed. Back in those days today, we complain about bad drivers. Back then, they complained about bad walkers. Read the Canterbury Tales. They do it. Uh, You know, it's the same thing. The world hasn't changed. Where did that division come from? It came from the Enlightenment, a group of anti-God people who said, you know what, the Middle Ages were dominated by religion, therefore we will call them the Dark Ages. They took a word from an Italian poet named Plutarch, and they they said, we're going to call it the Dark Ages. When we read about the history of the world, the way you read about the history of the world comes from a guy named Edward Gibbons, and is Tom Larnard here? He'd get mad at me for knocking on Gibbon. But, but it comes from this guy, and you know what Edward Gibbon believed was the downfall of the ancient world? Christianity. He believed that the followers of Jesus Christ brought down the Roman Empire and, and brought about the Dark Ages. So when you talk to somebody, they just assume, if you are a Christian, you are an ignorant hick. And the church... If we're going to be like Proverbs 31, we need to be intelligent. A real intelligence. A real knowledge. A real practical wisdom. We should be the leaders of culture. Not the followers. She's intelligent. She's engaged. You know what I always... This is just a a personal thing. But you know how... If you guys ever want to know how to... um, how I have conversations with people. Um, I always wonder whether somebody is going to ask the right questions. That's my big question. That's my big thing about people. I can engage endlessly. And those of you who have had conversations with me know that I cannot shut up. Um, but I will engage endlessly with somebody who asks the right questions. What do I mean by the right questions? I mean real questions. I used to teach a, a high school Bible class And I had a group of kids who would answer every question with Jesus phrased as a question. What is the core theme of the scriptures? Jesus? And and when I stopped saying Jesus, you know how they'd answer? God? So one day I wrote, Christy, were you in the class that I wrote a quiz I wrote a quiz where the answer to every question was Jesus, and they failed. I'm like, I get, that's a gimme right there. And I had kids getting 40s and 50s on the test because they could not think critically. But there were always, there were always a couple of kids who always had good questions. And, and I was infamous. Christy had me for homeroom in eighth grade. So that's why I used Christy. With, she, was, she was in eighth grade, not me. Um, and, and Christy knows that I could be derailed by anything. I taught her class English. And if we spent 
I don't know, a couple of weeks on actual English in that, that class. That was impressive. Because if a kid could ask a good question, man, I'd follow that question. I wanted their brains engaged. I wanted them involved in the story. I wanted them to be intelligent. That's how my dad taught me. That's how, that's how we should always learn, to follow a course of thought. There's never a stupid question. There might be a, a wrong question, but there's never a stupid question. Inquire and grow and mature. And I did it before Google. I mean, those of you who remember card catalogs, you remember how hard it was to get the answers to your questions. You, it wasn't like today you go on and Google it, Wikipedia shows up, 850 websites. You had to say, you know, I'm curious about this. You would go to the library, go to the library card, hope that your library had it. If they didn't, you'd have to request it. It took three weeks because you, somehow the postal service took a lot longer back then than it does now. You know, and you'd get the book. Then you had to read the book. You couldn't just search the web page. You know, there was all this stuff. She's intelligent. She's smart. And the church should be intelligent. The church should be asking the right questions. I use a, 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 a one that people get on, and I don't, I don't mean to offend you if you're on the other side of this, this argument, but there's, there's, there was an argument and discussion that still goes on in the churches about contemporary music and modern music and, and whether we should be listening to traditional music or contemporary music and what's the blend and all that stuff. My answer to that was always, well, shouldn't we be listening to good music? Because um, I've heard some pretty terrible traditional music. Um, I've heard some pretty terrible modern music. Um, I can't stand 7-Eleven songs any more than people who are twice my age. You know the 7-Eleven, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. He le Leave that to the Beatles. Worship music should be theologically sound and musically impressive. But there was, a, there was a, um, this debate over the modern music and the contemporary music and traditional music, and they're going back and forth and they're arguing. You know what? Wrong question. Wrong question. That's not the right question. The right question isn't, what kind of music should we listen to? The right question is, what music brings glory to the Lord? What music brings the congregation into the presence of God? That's the question. And you know what? There's a lot of modern music that's all about me. There are also a lot of hymns that are about me. Just because it's in the hymn book doesn't make it right. And just because it's played by a band doesn't make it good. And you've got to write, ask the right questions. That's what she does. Well, here's the third characteristic of her that I want, to, I want you to see. So the, the first one is she's confident in her place. The second one is she's intelligent. She's capable of acting. But thirdly, because of those two things, she draws extraordinary attention from those around her. Lynn can tell you that you could share gospel tracts with Buddhists and Shinto all you want. Shinto. They they couldn't care less. Now, if you work in like now, see if you work in India, you present somebody the story of Jesus, so like, here's Jesus, he's God. They go, Great. I'll add him to the list. You know, and, and that happens all the time. But in Japan, it's very, very they're opposed to it. They're in opposition to it. And one of the beautiful things that happened in this terrible tragedy was that Crash and other organizations like it understood that the best way to open the door to these people was to simply be there. To simply be the Gospel. To earn a reputation for love and compassion and wisdom. They didn't show up, and I guarantee you that somewhere in the church, Big C, there was an organization who said, you know what would be great? Tsunami hit Japan. Let's send them 
thousands and thousands of Bibles. Now, it's not wrong to send Bibles, but what did they need? They didn't need Bibles. They needed blankets. They needed tents. They needed fresh water. They needed somebody to come and go through the debris and rubble and help them rebuild and to become a part of their world. You know what happened with the Proverbs 31 woman? Because she was confident in her place in the world, because she was intelligent, and she knew to ask the right questions and to take the right steps, she draws attention. She's praised not for her beauty. In fact, verse 30, it says charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. I always pictured, and this is my warped mind, but I always pictured this being done to, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. Uh, you ever heard that song? You want my personal point of view, get an ugly girl to marry you. Now, I was fortunate that I did not have to apply that song. You guys thought I wasn't going to cover that bass. But King Lemuel, he says, his mother says to him, Lemuel, don't go after beauty. Don't go after what's attractive. He says, go after what's praiseworthy. I've been in churches with multi-million dollar buildings. I've been to churches where their sound system requires more people to run it than gather on a Sunday morning here in this service. I've been to churches with choirs of thousands. I've seen preachers who, just, if you've ever seen like somebody like T.D. Jakes preach, man, if you go for entertainment value, a guy like him, man, he preaches, you're like, that was amazing. How did he do that? That was extraordinary. He's preaching another gospel, but that's beside the point. He's an entertaining speaker. I've been to all kinds of churches that have bought all kinds of things. They've had things that, that we long for. Accessible bathrooms. A piano that works every Sunday. Uh, a carpet that doesn't slide. If you ever get a chance to take a look at this, well, just try to open that door and you'll discover where our carpet is piling up. One day, if we don't, if we don't replace the carpet, eventually one day there's just going to be a giant pile of blue back there in that corner. I've been to churches where everything is immaculate. Everything is beautiful. Everything is polished. Everything is fine. And it is empty, empty, empty. I've been to little churches like our church who are so arrogant and prideful about who they are and what they are. They're this hard, feminist kind of church. You're going to tell God what to do. This is the way we're going to be. I used to know a woman that talked like that. Anyway. we got mushy churches. we got this. You know what? Can I just tell you guys something? I love this beautiful mess. I love our church. Every once in a while when I get frustrated, and you got, you, Eric, you get, you get frustrated, or, or more appropriately, pastor, you get frustrated. You're not allowed to get frustrated. We called you pastor. Uh, I get frustrated every once in a while, and I know that I could go off and be a, a music leader somewhere. I could be the music pastor somewhere and make a good wage and provide for my family and all that stuff. I just couldn't live without you guys. When we lost Ron, I 
I got nobody to anchor that side. Now I got to look at Steve. <laughs> you guys don't know how I preach. I preach specific locations, and Ron was was my anchor there. I love our church. You know what I love about our church? It's not that you guys do everything I tell you to do. (laughs) Not the case. It's not that we're the attractive, the most attractive church, the prettiest church or anything. You know, it's not that we do everything right all the time because we don't. But I do believe that we are desperately trying to find our place and do what needs to be done. And we're doing it intelligently. We're trying to ask the right questions. We're seeking after Christ. And we don't always work things out the right way. We don't always come out ahead. We're not always the Church of Philadelphia. We're not always beautiful. But we're very, very rarely Laodicea. I just broke my own rule. Laodicea. And guys, if you're visiting with us, if you've been a part of our congregation along the way, Um, You're just getting into maybe our congregation and trying to figure it out. I assure you that our church is not perfect and you won't make it so. But if you want to be a part of an imperfect group of people who are just desperately trying to be the Proverbs 31 woman for Jesus in Merrimack, who are desperately trying to just be what He wants us to be, just desperately trying to not be known for all of the things we glitz and glamour, but really just people noticing that we love Jesus. We're pouring our heart and soul into knowing Him better, being intelligent about how we work, doing what needs to be done. Let me gloat on somebody for a while, and I know I'm getting to the end here. I want to finish up. I just want to gloat on somebody. Is Sandy here? Sandy Mishula? There she is. Sandy hates being embarrassed which is why I do it. Um, never trust Sandy with communion stuff, but um, that's a story. You can ask Sandy about that later. Little things. Little things. You want to know what is the biggest thing that you can do as a, as a Christian? What, where, where can I be? You see a need and you meet a need and you don't expect everybody else to meet it with you. Oh, this is my thing. Everybody should be a part of my thing. You know what? Sandy comes from New Jersey. She and I... She and I, uh, we share that heritage, although she comes from Jersey and I come from the part that's green. Um, but uh, she comes from New Jersey and, and Sandy, when, when the, the hurricane that was named after her um, and also upset some communion cups, uh, when that hurricane blew through, Sandy found a, a little nonprofit in Bedford that, that just does little hygiene kits. And she sent us an email and she just said, hey, do you think I could do this? And, um, you know, the elder said, yeah, absolutely. And Sandy collected, I don't know, a dozen and a half, two dozen, something like that, little hygiene kits. Then the tornadoes came this past year. You know, and it's weird because American, American disasters, we have disasters on a completely different scale than everywhere else in the world. I mean, Japan, 18,000 people die in a tsunami. We forget about it in six months. In America, you know, we lose 20 people in a hurricane. It's a tornado. It's the end of the world. But, but, um, but that hurricane came. There were thousands and thousands of people without electricity. There's still people without electricity, without running water. And Sandy just said, hey, do you think we could do this again? And just a few people stuck some simple stuff, toothbrushes and wet naps and toothpaste and things in plastic bags and gave it to her. That's not a big thing. 
It's not a big hoopla thing. It's not a everybody get on board and do my thing. It's just here's a little thing I can do. Here's a need. I can meet that need. Maybe some other people would like to meet that need with me. You know, and that, and that happens over and over and over again. And people don't get praise from that. They don't get glory from that, from the church. We don't give you a plaque and tell you we're so blessed to have you with us. But that's the definition of that Proverbs 31 church. We just meet those needs. I know that people have, have gone to other people's homes and raked yards and, and prepared meals and, and uh, uh, they have done little things, shovel snow. People go and visit and give communion to, to, to people that most of our congregation has never even met. Just very quietly ministering and working. And we say, we say, oh, shouldn't we, shouldn't we make this a big church program and get hundreds and hundreds of people? No. Just do your thing. Do that little thing. Be a part of what Jesus is doing. Some of us get the privilege, and it is a privilege and a responsibility to do the upfront things, but those are no more significant than the behind the scene things. Those of you who did the little things that no one will ever know about. And, and I could go on and list them for all, all over the place. Richard Lawler comes in and sees all these little shoppy things that need to be fixed that those of us who don't see trim and things like that and paint, he comes in and does those little things. Sean Donahue is, is paid to be here, but he does all kinds of little things along the line that nobody sees. Um, we've had, we've had I, I, I'm going to forget people and don't, don't get offended if I don't name your name. Um, but little things. Bev Zazoulis, who just had to leave, she, she puts together a calendar for the communion every, every month so that somebody is there to prepare that. Terry Larnard gets somebody else and counts the offering on Sunday morning, and nobody even sees that. Peter Lindsay, every single Sunday, looks around going, are there enough men to usher? These little insignificant things, insignificant things, those are beautiful things. Asking the right question, being involved. Guys, I am overwhelmingly blessed to be a part of Bedford Road. And I hope that you feel that way. I hope you feel that way even in the darkest days. When you sit there going, you know, we sat there for an hour and 15 minutes and I have no idea what Eric said. Even when you have to go through a cringeworthy song, we've all had to endure it. Even when nothing works, even when the air conditioners aren't on, even when, even when things go bad, I hope you still sit there and go, man, I'm just so, I'm so blessed to be a part of a Proverbs 31 church. A church that knows their place, is trying to see what needs to be done and do it. Do it intelligently. And we're just hoping to bring glory to our husband, Jesus Christ. And people notice us and they see him. And Jesus said, um, men will, I'm going to blow the quote because it just popped into my head. He said, but let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's really all we're trying to do. All we're trying to be. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you don't give us perfect churches.
that you take broken people and egos and struggles and difficulties and challenges and work schedules, odd preferences, weird notions, and you have united us into what you call your bride, what your Apostle John called the chosen lady. And the only person whose opinion matters to us is yours. And you thought enough of us to bring us together. You saw enough future and beauty in our ugliness to make us your bride. Just as you have united your whole church, Big C, that way. Thus, in a local expression of that. Father, thank You for sending Your Son to be the head of this church and the head of every church that is committed to Him. Thank You for Your instruction, Your correction, Your reproof. Thank You for Your chastening to make us more like Jesus. And Holy Spirit, thank You that You do not leave us in silence but You give us life and breath and move us along in this process, in this imperfection, in this amazing thing You call church. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we give You glory this morning for You alone can do this thing and will continue to do this thing through us. Help us to bring praise to You, our Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.